0: It's a five-star podcast.
1: Because we do it.
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 68 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my tag team championship partner in podcasting. The J himself, Jared Majora's. What's going on, man?
1: Extraordinarily pumped up this week. Hey, you know Like the J needs to be like Rowdy Roddy Piper himself, which we'll be getting into. I am, I'm going to throw this word. I haven't used it in my show in a while. It's one of our old school words. I am geeked this week. Hey, you you know how we do. We're going to knock out episode 68 and I'm pumped. We have a ton of shit and you're going to run through it. But more than anything, because you know your boy the J, the the horny one himself, like a (laughs) Viking riding a Triceratops wearing a Viking helmet, horny as hell. But uh, I am pumped up for the big episode 69 extravaganza next week. But this is 68. So let's do it. Hey, you all.
0: We have and I know I say that we have a big show a lot, but like this is one of the most epic shows we've done so far. Uh, Of course, we have our usual stuff. We're going to be talking some goofs and, you know, like our opening segment here where we talk about a a whole variety of things. Uh, Not only that, but we have the 80 biography of WWE superstar, Rowdy Roddy Piper. That is going to be awesome. Uh, Of course, we head on down to the last drive in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs with a double feature of Audition from Takashi Miike from 1998 and a class of 1984, which is no surprise, the most prolific director in what's real podcasting history. Mark L. Lester makes another appearance on the show. Our MVD. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So it's amazing how that works out. Uh, of course, uh, with if you guys pay attention to new releases, one of the biggest releases this past weekend was none other than Mortal Kombat. Me and the Jay are going to have a review for you guys on that. <laughs> which, <laughs> will, <laughs> which will be spoiler free, I, I think it's safe to say. So everything else is is off the boards because you know these are older movies. And on Thursday night prime, uh, for its last hurrah. Uh, well, not really. It's last raw, but we're getting to the last raw. Next to last, say. yeah. Next to last on this one. Uh, a couple more Bronson flicks to come, and then we're gonna give Thursday Night Prime a little bit of a break here on the show. You'll see how that's all gonna work out because we're not even <laughs> quite sure. We, we need to heal. Out.
1: Hey, you know, the Jay got mad. Mad yeah. more scars from that segment too.
0: Uh, I'm telling you, and I, I'm afraid of what's gonna happen later on in the show. Uh, it's gonna get weird because it got weird in the film we're going to check out this week, another Charles Bronson canon mashup. We're talking 10 to midnight from 1983, uh, the movie with the naked serial killer. So shit's about to get weird. Um, but uh, that's pretty much our show this week. So a lot of stuff to get to. So let's just get into it. The J shall we Let's do. it. Um, this is kind of appropriate, I guess for, for this week and what we're talking about on the show. Um, and I am on board with this. Uh, what do you think, the J of the Miz uh, wants to play Johnny Cage in a future Mortal Kombat series? Uh, I'm all in for it. I think he's perfect. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, what can you say? I mean, shit, perfect is the word. Like Mr. Perfect comparison, hate y'all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that he he obviously fits the look, okay? Um, he obviously has experience in action movies, so to speak, even though they're not very really good. He yeah. still, has, still has the experience. Um, I think he could pull this off. I think The Miz is basically like a Johnny Cage, you know, and I don't mean this negatively, but like a Johnny Cage ripoff.
1: That's what I'm saying. He's um, a Cage clone, weirdly, as far as the WWE's version of a Johnny Cage, at least.
0: Yes, so uh, I think it would be very cool, and the the cool thing is, over the weekend, he was kind of uh, championing himself for this uh, on Twitter, and uh, Ed Boone, and uh, I forget the other guy's name, the other co-creator of Mortal Kombat, uh, responded to him and said, like, he kind of has a point, so... Uh, It wouldn't surprise me at all if something like this happens, and I think that it would be cool if it does, and uh, I'm all for it, like I said, for any future installments of Mortal Kombat that they might have in the works. Uh, Anytime Johnny Cage comes up, I think The Miz's name should probably be brought up.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely be breaking it down in detail later on in the show here. But, yeah, it's pretty surprising that one of the most popular characters and original characters of the franchise did not make an appearance. But, yeah, with this specific topic here at the outset, hey, you know, yeah, who better to play Johnny Cage than The Miz?
0: And The Miz also getting some props on Twitter this weekend from a very prominent WWE legend, none other than John Cena, uh giving The Miz some credit. Yeah, this so- was cool. Uh, There was a couple of things that I noticed, too, because The Miz was given John Cena a lot of credit, too. I saw that as well, uh, where he basically said, like, he didn't really know what he was doing until he wrestled Cena and feuded with Cena. And then he kind of figured out, like, what he needs to be doing, which is exactly what I would expect from somebody like Cena. And uh, there's another tweet that's been going around. Uh, This goes into something that, that, that me and you have talked about for years. Um, But this person, this is at Keegan Keegan R.W. on Twitter. It says, John Cena being part-time for the last five years has shown how valuable he was as a full-timer. Now, many of us see how significant he was to the product. The term underappreciated is used a lot. But Cena put the company on his back for over 300 days a year for 14 years. And that kind of goes back to something that we've always kind of talked about, the J. Like, you know, like once John Cena's gone, we're going to miss him. And I think that people are, are definitely coming around to that for sure.
1: This, this is a trend just specifically as a lifetime and lifelong wrestling fan. Since you're watching the product from the time you're a kid into adulthood, week in and week out, of course, you're going to go through phases of who you like at certain times. Guys are going to get stale at certain times. And like with anything, you know, word of the year or maybe decade within all these streaming services and all the content of, with all the technology sources we have, Hey Ed, but over saturation galore right now with with so much stuff just out there within the pop culture medium and and entertainment as a whole. And when you're around for 14 years, you're going to get hit stale segments and and still periods. And as a fan, you're going to get sick of a guy here and there. I mean, we've, we've mentioned it from the past, because as lifelong fans, again, it goes back to as we were kids, and eventually getting sick of some of our favorites at certain points due due to that same exact thing that Cena would go through. And Cena was even a longer run than pretty much anybody. But there was periods where, where we weren't weren't big on Stone Cold as much. The Undertaker got goofy and stale. Hell, I always shout out like Shawn Michaels is probably my favorite wrestler overall of all time. There was periods where I was kind of over him where he was weird, like running with DX in the PG era and different things, of course. So so yeah. The Bottom line is, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's why they say the cheesy cliched shit. And you were you were somebody that championed that for a long time, hey, you're like, dude, I'm telling you though, like Cena can get boring, and he's he had that run of just headlining pay per view after pay per view for like almost a decade. But when he's gone, we're gonna miss him, and that's really something you could look back in hindsight and
0: see now. Absolutely, because they don't they they've. see it's weird man this company is either doing one of two things uh and i'm talking about since the wwf was created and i'm talking about like the 1984 wwf you know company was essentially made into what it was uh they're either riding high with someone or they're scrambling looking for that next guy that they're going to ride high with and People didn't think they were riding high with Cena a lot of the time. They just saw him as, like, another run-of-the-mill guy, but that's not the case, and it wasn't for a long time. Um, It was cool to shit on John Cena and stuff for years, and they've kind of made that into a a little bit of the folklore with him, but it's still, like, not telling the full story. Uh, but people still right now, though, I think even realized that they were wrong about that stuff at the time. That was more of a reaction to what the company was doing and less of a reaction of Cena actually not being somebody who was appreciated.
1: That's that's the thing he pioneered as well, that only he can do with that particular run at that particular time, becoming the most polarizing superstar in history. But that made a lot of events and made a lot of different guys, especially at the peak of it, you would have to say CM Punk. And of course, the classic match where everything, the stars aligned and CM Punk won the championship in his hometown of Chicago at the height of all that. And that atmosphere, I don't know if it has ever been equaled, you know, maybe at a WrestleMania like Rock Hogan, something like that, but it's in the upper echelon of specific WWE crowd atmospheres for sure. that's what something like that all led to with Cena.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that when you look back on Cena's career, it's pretty impressive uh, because you got like the run, the WrestleMania runs with the rock. You got the whole edge feud. Um, You have, you know, like the stuff with him and punk, uh, the stuff with him and Daniel Bryan, uh there's a lot of guys. Like even you know, just hand picking out stuff that I remember that I like is like his feud with Umaga, uh the feud with Michaels. Um, like there's a lot of Edge. stuff. Yeah, yeah, the Edge feud's the best one. Yep. Um, so I mean, dude, his his resume speaks for itself and it's it's nice to see that he's getting the props now, even though He's I, I, like there, are people were like saying, like, even in the status thing that they were saying about him being a part timer, but like, he's significantly less than a part timer at this point.
1: Yeah, like one of the first comments said that was a good point. I wasn't a fan of his, but I realized he wasn't for me, just like Hulk Hogan wasn't for my dad, you know, because yeah. again, you get that different eras and things, and he became the PG star. So, a lot of us older fans and guys that kind of wanted the more realistic, uh, you know, edgy product and things like that. You know, that the Cena era kind of wasn't for us and things. But again, in hindsight, as a wrestling fan, you could look back on it and say he did what he needed to do. And you can't take away from the fact that he carried the company for over a decade, just working
0: night in and night out straight. Ridiculous. And uh, another story uh, kind of in the world of wrestling based off something we talked about last week. Uh, was Mickey James being fired and sent her bags, uh, or all her stuff in garbage bags. And uh, it appears that uh, WWE employee Mark Carano um, was fired over this. And there's even some more uh, stuff that came out. Apparently his ex-wife is on Twitter just kind of outing him for stealing title belts and trying to kill his ex's cat and just all kinds of weird shit. Uh, but you know, I think it's funny because I never liked Carano uh from the first time I realized who this guy was. Um so I think it's funny. I don't know. I just you know, it's kind of like the conclusion of that story that we had uh, the first half of last week before we knew who he was who who it was. was that was fired. So uh ha ha ha. He's awful. So that, that's a great thing, I guess, for the company.
1: Yeah, For those that don't know, Mark Carano specifically is the senior or I should say now former senior director of talent relations, and he was best known. uh, You could see kind of the behind the scenes of him with the Total Divas show. That he was part of because he was in, you know, mainly being the director of talent relations, but like mainly on that show, his interactions with the the Divas division, which would eventually become the women's division. And yeah, he seemed like a creep. You never know. I always say I don't cast judgment. I don't know the dude personally, but with all this coming out, doesn't seem like the best person. And uh, yeah, like you said, the specific quote from his ex-wife, Deborah Simmons saying, Hey, Mark Carano's, he stores belts that he stole from WWE under the bed in the guest room at his West Haven home. <laughs> so like, what
0: the hell? Yeah, at least but, the the carny nature of pro wrestling. Yeah, it's, it's alive and well. Hey, you know. Yeah. Uh, also another uh, bit of Twitter drama too. Uh we spoke about Chelsea Green last week uh being cut by the WWE. Uh, which leads her this week to getting dragged on Twitter by a ton of people because she showed some artwork that an artist had made for her without giving credit. And when asked to give credit, very politely, uh, she just deleted it and then blocked the
2: person. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, just, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I'm not trying to shit on Chelsea Green. I don't really care but you know like just a reminder guys just because somebody's in the world of wrestling doesn't automatically mean that they're a nice person or a remotely decent person and in most cases it's probably the actual opposite of that so just a friendly reminder to everybody yeah that's that's what
1: it comes down to dude stranger danger you don't know each other i mean you're a fan you did a nice gesture and the whole point of the guy was saying that he Did a lot of work on it. It'd be nice. It'd be nice to get credit. She has thousands, if not millions, of followers and things like that on social media. So I see his point. And you know, like most people's argument is towards Chelsea Green. All you had to do was say, you know, okay, here's credit to the guy. This was made by at whatever. But like you mentioned in the story, she did not give credit, deleted it, and then blocked them. So is what it is. Like you said, I don't have a horse in the race, but again, uh, it, whether it was a, a knee jerk reaction, just some social media bullshit, I can't comment too much on it, but just from the very far outside looking in, it, it seems like it was kind of a, a shitty, stupid move that she could have just not had to deal with if she just gave the dude some credit.
0: Exactly. So pretty self-explanatory. Uh, also another thing here in the world of wrestling, this could actually turn out to be a pretty big deal. Uh, AEW dynamite might be forced to change nights. Thanks to the NHL. Um, it's been broke. uh, A big story over the last few days is the NHL doing a deal with Turner sports, um, in the future. So NHL games will be featured on either TBS or TNT. They haven't ironed that part out yet. Um, but they, this article on SB nation, uh, pretty much breaks down the fact that, um, This might mean a change in nights. They're they're saying right now that it doesn't, um, but there's a potential that something could change. So here's the basic breakdown uh, from Dave Meltzer. He said the big uh, game of the week had been on a Wednesday television game. And what does that mean with AEW? Uh, If it's on TBS, it doesn't mean anything. If TNT wants it, that gets really tricky. Uh, The early things that I've been told is it will not affect AEW, that AEW will stay in its time slot and probably end up on TBS on a different night. I mean, that could go to Monday or Friday. Tuesday and Thursday is NBA, so that's off. Uh, And for TNT to move AEW, uh, if if that were to happen, I mean, the problem is your choice would be Monday night or Friday night and probably Friday night because Tony Khan was pretty adamant about not running on uh, Monday nights because he doesn't want to go against the NFL because, you know, his father owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Friday would be going head to head with SmackDown, which would not be a good idea because then you're splitting the audience. And you're also on a much weaker channel. Uh, Fox is much more powerful than TNT, so that would be a bigger disadvantage. And that one would hurt in the ratings. And also the fact that SmackDown is a stronger show to the average person than NXT would be. So just something potentially for the future. Uh, if AEW uh, would have to switch nights or switch times or anything like that, it could get a little tricky. Uh, but we'll have to see how that turns out as you know the months move along.
1: You know what I'm going to say? hate yeah, we're old school WCW fans. They're on a Turner network again. Bring back the 605. Fuck it. You got to change your nights. You don't want to go up against football. You don't want to go up against SmackDown. 605. It is
0: in the Jays opinion. Yeah, do that on Saturdays. That would be a great idea. Uh, actually, I mean, I get why they wouldn't want to do that, but nonetheless, it would still be pretty cool. Um, some more stuff from the world of combat sports last weekend was UFC 261, uh, and it featured, uh, Usman beating up Masvidal pretty viciously. Um, but that wasn't the only big story. Oh, this This
1: was a big night of MMA. Yeah.
0: And this is pretty crazy just seeing this, but Chris Weidman, uh, also, uh, a fighter who got injured pretty badly, uh, in this fight. Now, the reason why this is significant is because the same thing happened years ago to Anderson Silva when he was fighting Chris Weidman. Uh, And, you know, the same exact thing happened where he just basically destroyed his leg. Uh, It was absolutely disgusting, uh, completely gruesome, one of the worst things I've seen in MMA. Um, And it made major headlines, even so much so that like Anderson Silva himself was like wishing Weidman well on uh, Twitter and stuff like that. So it's pretty crazy. And it was a big night uh, with big fights and it seemed like a pretty big deal uh, overall, especially compared to like some of the last ones that they've had.
1: Yeah, full disclosure, I was watching the show, and as the J is, even on a Saturday night <laughs> with my overworked ass, I was kind of in and out of sleep, but caught a lot of it and uh, did catch that. It was just awful. It was probably even worse than Silva's, which is saying a lot because that was brutal. I mean, again, man, it's you know getting older and all, all the disclaimers we always throw out there with things like this. You just never want to see somebody get injured, especially to that degree and and it's taken Wideman a while to get back anyway this was yep. a big fight against a really good fighter in uriah hall of course uriah hall being upset that that he didn't get to have the, the full fight, but what are you going to do? And, of course, he understands that, but ha- had a right to get, be frustrated and upset because you just never know what's going to happen. But, yeah, he just checked the, uh, the calf kick and just snapped his leg in and, and all kinds of places. And, unfortunately, uh, I don't know if you saw, it was a pretty decent crowd there at, you know, at this event. And that is when the friend of the show of ours, the man himself, Jake Paul, actually crashed UFC doing an NWO angle as Wyman was getting taken out on a stretcher and people were like chanting, like fuck Jake Paul and stuff when he's getting stretchered out. But that's what happens. And you know, Jake Paul is what Jake Paul is just a, a shit starter. So makes sense.
0: Yeah. This is how somebody whores themselves out to the media to just try and get noticed. But I mean, I guess it's working to a certain degree. So yeah. Um, Also, another wrestling related thing, even though it's not wrestling itself, uh, CM Punk uh, had some information and stuff revealed on his heels character, the upcoming stars wrestling drama that we've spoken about here on the show. Um, The former WWE champion plays the role of heel pro wrestler Ricky Rabies, who is paired up with a character named Vicky Rabies, who appears to be his valet. Vicky is played by actress Bonnie Somerville. Uh, you can see a photo of the two in the article, uh, which shows the roadkill themed uh, looked with Possum Drone, which was confirmed by Punk on Twitter. Um, he tweeted out some of the photos and said, say hello to your new favorite wrestling duo. Hashtag uh, Heels One fun- fan asked Punk how long it took for them to remove the tattoos for filming, and he responded, 90 minutes upon three or up to three hours. I have a time-lapse video of it I've been waiting to post. Uh, Punk, who recently revealed that he wrestles former NFL player James Harrison, uh, which we talked about this on the show, too, because we've seen him in some wrestling training footage. He was clearly from that show. Um, He will appear in at least one episode of the Stars Pro Wrestling drama as a rival to one of the brothers' heel, Jack Spade, played by Stephen Amell, and babyface Ace Spade, played by Alexander Ludwig. Uh, Heels follows the two brothers mentioned above as they fight in the ring and out of the ring for their Georgia-based pro-wrestling promotion that their father left them with when he passed away. The series focused on their struggles on camera and behind the scenes. The name of the promotion is Duffy Wrestling League. The show began filming in Georgia in August 2020 and recently wrapped. Uh, Heels is rumored to premiere in August but will be arriving sometime this year. There will be uh, eight one-hour episodes in the first season. So uh, this is cool. I'm definitely looking forward to this. I don't have stars, but I will definitely find a way to watch this. Um, You know, it could be good, could be stupid, but so far it seems like they're doing a lot of the right stuff.
1: As usual, being huge pro wrestling fans, we're going to check it out. And I'm definitely just as interested as you, Hayyot. And um, going to be neat to see. I mean, this is kind of the first time, you know, especially any time recently, that they're putting together a, a pretty straightforward professional wrestling uh, nonfiction, you know, show we've been watching a lot of documentaries and bios and things on the network. Not Nothing like this. So, so pretty cool. Um, you know, probably going back to the wrestler was like the real, yeah. you know, the first like really good nonfiction, um, you know, straight up film, even in a while. And we've always said that, man, wrestling and film. And as you know, because we've already announced it in things uh, with our production company, Churchill pictures, we have a, a, a pre-production film project in the works that we hope to get the budget for that's involving a nonfiction eighties wrestling promotion. So this didn't steal that idea either. So whew, there, you know, this is mo- more modern, but nonetheless, yeah, it's an untapped kind of thing that you could think w- could be a solid sub genre one day. I mean, think how many zombie movies and stuff there are in comparison to any sort of pro wrestling shows. I mean, you're going back to like goofy things, even though we love it, like body slam, just because how, you know, growing up, we love that, sh- that movie. But it's nothing like, you know, the like the wrestler. And then then, of course, the wrestler and then something like th- uh, the Hulk Hogan movie. Um, I can't even no holds barred. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, you could basically count on two hands how many pro wrestling-based films and shows there are. So add this to the canon, and I'm just interested to see what they can do. But, but yeah, some cool cameos with CM Punk being involved and James Harrison, who, as you mentioned, I mean, looking at just the footage and how he can still fucking throw weights around and things, he might be headed for a WWE run (laughs) or something (laughs) at this point.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. But dude, also uh, another bit here, as far as the world of TV and movies go, John Cameron Mitchell has been cast opposite of Kate McKinnon as the infamous Joe Exotic in the uh, Tiger King upcoming scripted series. Uh, we were talking about this a little bit off the air, but like, I don't think I'm going to care about this at all. Um I don't know, maybe, but like we've kind of seen the real thing. So unless it's just being done for like comedic value, I probably won't have an interest in it at all.
1: That's the only chance they have. That's what I was going to say. Maybe it's like a, you know, if it's like an over the top kind of spoofish. Yep version of it because I mean how much that's the thing. The real one was so goddamn over the top. That's what made it because it was real. So now you're gonna try to capture that within a nonfiction TV show. Um I I you know I, I wish them the best that sort of thing and all that, but uh just my straight up transparent opinion off the bat here, hey, yo, I think this is gonna be a failure. I don't see it being anything great. Uh it is a limited series, so you know if they could focus on certain things and like you said, really go with the the cosmetic, comedic turn of it maybe they could pull something off but yeah i don't see it just again because the the original documentary is so over the top and crazy and and we've already watched that so you know it's like good luck
0: yeah i feel pretty much the same way on that uh, you know speaking of documentaries uh this is actually really cool we brought this up a while ago on the show But um, this is from Uh, Deadline.com. London-based sales outfit Dog Wolf has picked up world rights, excluding Australian and New Zealand, on Eddie Martin's feature documentary, The Kids, which is the story of the young skateboarders picked from the streets of Manhattan by Larry Clark to star in his 1995 cult classic, Kids. Martin previously directed Have You Seen the Lister's, uh, which Dog Wolf handled rights on and sold to Netflix. He also helmed all this mayhem about the dark side of professional skateboarding. His latest chronicles, in their own words, how the stars of kids became overnight commodities thrust into the mainstream spotlight, left adrift under the bright lights. Uh, while some were discovered, uh, some discovered transcendent lives and careers, while others, abandoned and unequipped to handle fame, suffered fatal consequences. The Kids is produced and edited by Shannon Swan, co-produced by uh, Hamilton Chongo Harris, Peter Beasy, uh, Caroline Rothstein, and Jessica Forsyth with cinematography by Hugh Miller and additional camera by Michael Lathan and Jerome De La Garche. It is a six seasons productions and resolution media production made with support from Screen Australia with the assistance of Film Victoria. So that's cool news on that. This is definitely something that I'm really interested in. So it's nice with another film company like this on board. uh, There's a better chance of us seeing it sooner than later.
1: Yeah, pretty ironic. This is coming around not too long removed from when we covered a review of Kid 90, uh, a documentary that, the, the kids appeared in, like I was joking. It was like a almost like a Scooby-Doo episode just out of nowhere. Like, oh, and then I was hanging out with kids yep. in, in real life, and I captured it in this doc. So not too far removed from that. Here goes a separate complete kids documentary. And I'm with you, man. I know it's one of your favorite movies of all time, and, and you're probably a bigger kids fan overall, but still a big fan of Larry Clark in this film. Uh, again, it's a, it's a nostalgia thing. I, I can remember where I was the first time I watched it in high school and all that. And uh, like you mentioned, man, there's a, a big – amount of star turns in this. Of course, the two biggest probably Rosario Dawson and our favorite Chloe Sevigny. Yeah. But um but yeah, very very interested to see see what happens and I'm sure we will you know when when we catch it down the road here, we'll cover it on the on the podcast here.
0: Absolutely. So, uh let's move along to this week's best sneaker releases, DJ. What do you think? From the folks oh, yeah. over at sneakernews.com. Uh first up, this is a Pretty interesting Air Jordan. Uh, this is the Lee May Styles uh, Modern Air Jordan 1 Zoom CMFT. Uh, obviously not my kind of thing, but a cool design nonetheless, I think.
1: Yeah, I think, was this the collaboration
0: with Russell Westbrook? No, that's the one below it.
1: Okay. I wasn't sure because, yeah, I I, um, I don't know. These, these ones are weird. And, and you know me, like I always say, I, I like the more kind of just, not too busy, kind of colorways and things. Like yeah. I, I like to to kind of get different, but I think these are, in my words, too busy. Hate you. Yeah.
0: I like the colorway on them. I just don't like the the tongues and shit. Like that. Yeah, and the
1: the fur and shit.
0: Yeah, it's just goofy shit. But yeah. whatever, you know. I'm sure there's somebody out there that likes them. Uh next up are the drag racing uh themes dress, the Jordan Why Not Zero uh point fours. These are kind of like the Westbrook ones, even though they're not Westbrook shoes. Right. Uh again, I would never wear these. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: Talk about busy. These are a hundred times busier than the first ones I thought were busy. Uh like you said, the first one's due to just adding the extra goofy shit, and these are just all over the place with with color and fucking wackiness. Looks like uh Modern LA art museum design and, or some shit.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. Like these come across as more like collector's things to me than shoes you would wear, but like the why not 0.4s aren't collectible. So it just nah. what it is. Uh, the next one you told me out of sheer frustration, you didn't manage to get these, but the LeBron uh, Nike Air Max 95 home teams uh, in the Laker colorway. Uh, these are pretty sick. They're finally dropping. They've been uh, delayed a few times. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you weren't able to, to secure a pair, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. I got offered the draw cause you know, me with 95s and we talked about these in the past and I was going to land them if I, I could, like a lot of pairs. And my draw said you did not, um, you know, get the, the pair. So I did not get the draw, but shout out to our boy Hutch. That's the even bigger sneakerhead than us. He did send me his got him. So at least somebody in the crew got him. And um, yeah, I enjoy. I, I like these. These are sick, and there's some 95s. But as we always say, it's a it's a win win situation. Hey, yoke because I saved. Uh, you know, one. How much were these running? Like 130 at least.
0: Yeah, maybe even more. Which, maybe like
1: even a, more two Honda say. So to, I'll yeah, take I'll take the money. Save
0: 95s are pretty expensive. They're probably the most expensive Air Maxes that they come out with. Um, also, we've been talking about these a lot too. The Nike Air Griffy Max ones return in the Varsity Royal. Uh, I like the colorway a lot, uh, but I'm obviously going to be skipping these because I just don't have the need for these in my collection right now.
1: That's how I am. Again, we've been through it with uh, my love for Griffey and the Griffey shoes, but just not the time for the J to, to scoop these up at all or even go for them.
0: The Nike Dunk Low Green Glow is re releasing. Um, these are cool. Uh, I would try and get them. You know, I probably won't be able to as usual, but like I might try. Like I'm not. You know, I'm not against the colorway on those. They're
1: the cup of the address head, but not the cup of the J, not my cup of tea. Uh, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't go for these. I wouldn't sport them.
0: Next up is the Air Jordan 4 University Blue. Um, These are cool. I like them, but I'm not going to bother with these. Um, I just don't need these at all.
1: Yeah, I like them a lot. I said they're similar to our, our Alma Matters, the Woodland Hills Wolverines that we always call out with the turquoise, white and black. And as we always say, man, expendable income in a perfect world. I just snatch them to snatch them because of the Alma Matter colorway and things like that. But I'm right with you. I don't need something like this in my collection right now and to go for them and, and throw the dough at them. Uh not there at this point in time
0: for these ones. And also, the Nike LeBron 8 HWC is back. Um, I like these a lot, but I don't really buy LeBrons. I like the colorway a lot. They look cool. I hope I actually could see these in person somewhere. Um, but, yeah, I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to be buying these.
1: Not the Jay's Cup of Tea either. I'd pass on these. Hey, you.
0: Now, you said you like LeBrons, but, like, which – are there any specific ones that you like, or you just like different – one uh,
1: yeah, it just yeah, it depends. Um, you know, the two main things: colorway and and the the silhouette, of course. And like like these, for example, are just I always call this out. Like they're too boaty for me. You know, these yeah. are the ones that look decent on somebody that's six five plus because of the size of the shoe. Yeah, and somebody and that's five ten, it's like and too we're big.
0: Bo- we're both size twelve, gang over here. So right, you know. So
1: with being five ten with sell, size twelve shoe, if you don't wear the right shoe and you wear some boats, you just look like a goof. And some of the Lebrons is is just that. And this particular pair would be that just that on me.
0: Uh, dude next up these air jordan 35 uh with the the quilting on them yeah these these. are cool i like these a lot um i'm kind of bummed out that i just don't have the extra coin at this point to go for something like this same boat i like those like those are slept on and i guarantee you like when you see these like you'll be like fuck dude these are really nice
1: yeah this is that hypothetical scoop man if i could i would
0: Uh, The Nike Air Force One Acorns are coming in its first retro. Uh, I'm not a big big Air Force One guy, especially uh, in anything other than white. So that's a definite pass for me.
1: Yeah, I'll keep it short and sweet on the ones I don't like. Those are
0: a pass. Uh, The Nike Dunk High Celebrating the Lakers. uh, That's a sick shoe. I like these a lot. Um, It's just, again you know, the dunks are almost impossible to get. I'd like to try to get them, but uh, I'm not going to hold my breath.
1: No, exactly. And that's the thing that about these in particular for myself, hey, Ed, they remind me, you know, we again, we talked about it. I, the first probably quote unquote sneaker head pair of shoes I ever got. And I was young as shit at the time, even before, like I've referenced the Agassiz and stuff like that. I got the Converse Laker color, like Magic Johnson's. Yep. Back in the day, and that's what yep. these kind of you know these' are like almost like the Nike versions, so that's why yep. I like them you know for the past ship, but I'm in the same boat. I don't see myself being able to land a pair of dunks anytime soon
0: and then uh both similar shoes here the the Sakai Nike vapor waffle in sesame and the dark iris colorways um i these are too futuristic for me. I like more old school style shoes so Um, I've heard they're very comfortable and that people like them a lot. I can appreciate them for what they are, but they're not for my feet.
1: No, no, they're a pass for me, but I do like the artistic kind of creative angle on it where they're called the, you know, they're called Sesame, but the J for some reason correlates that with Siamese and they have the double shit. They have like the double tongue and the double, you know, like you you, said, so they should have called them the Siamese instead of the Sesame, but the sesames with the tones, but yeah, they're, they're cool and artistic, but I wouldn't sport them or or go for them.
0: And we talked about these last week too. These are ones that obviously I wouldn't wear either, but just, we were kind of talking about them and this shows you how they kind of work, but they're officially Nike is releasing the go fly ease, which are the shoes that you can put on without touching them. Essentially. That's how they fold in and fold out a neat concept. I could definitely see this being Uh, Something that's more normal for Nike like dude like to me these make for good like beach shoes and shit like that like if I was going to the beach or something and I just needed like shoes to kind of like hang out in I would be like yo I might grab a pair of these.
1: That's when you're getting bougie as fuck. Like I got $160 beach shoes, well, <laughs> you know, but I'm, I am am with you. I know what you're saying, but I'm just saying on the other side of it. You know? I mean,
0: we also live in Pittsburgh, so I have no use for something that looks and functions like this at all.
1: Like look at my $160 Creek shoes guys.
0: Yeah. Like I'm just going to go down to the lake just to wear my fucking expensive shoes. Cause I'm not going to wear them anywhere else. But yeah, as they,
1: as they say here on the site, one giant leap for inclusivity. So it's cool because, you know, for like handicapped people and things like that, Mm -hmm. they can just slip them on too. I think that's why the, they kind of ended up going with the concept because of that letter you actually talked about from a a paraplegic man that likes Nike. So it's definitely a cool concept and it's cool for people like that. They just need to slip right into some cool shoes.
0: Yeah. It's not just for lazy people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That too. Of course. Yeah. Uh, And the last one this week, dude, this one's kind of out of nowhere. Uh, I didn't really hear much. I mean, I knew that this could be potentially coming, but I didn't think it'd be anytime soon. The Travis Scott Air Jordan 6 appearing in British khaki. Um, I like these. I don't know what the fuck I'd wear them with, and I most likely would never be able to get a pair like this because they will be gone um, I will probably try because they'll be worth a fortune if I can get a pair. But dude, th- this is like a different colorway that I like. I think they're slick, something different, like way different for the Jordan. Yeah, 6. they're
1: way different. Not my cup of tea. They're like the uh, Star Wars sand peoples. Yeah, but... they're
0: like sand colored. That's a great, you know, way to. It looks like the material on them is sand. So. Uh, I dig them. I think they're cool. Definitely something different. I haven't been too big on a lot of the Travis Scott stuff, um, but these are cool. So that is the best releases for this upcoming sneaker week. So hope you guys enjoyed that part. Uh, We almost have to take a quick commercial break, but before we go, uh, I want to pose a question to you that uh, was raised this week. Something that we both kind of seen that I thought would make for some good chit chat here on the show. Um, who is the greatest pro athlete who never won a championship? In yeah,
1: we, yeah, we stumbled on this and I love it. Cause we always say we agree so much on the show because we came up together and that's why we're such good friends and all the yada, yada, yada. And I know you're going to hate my pick. So I love that for the talk of it because he is one of my favorite favorites of all time. And, and that's why I pick him because I, I just go back to, to myself as a kid more than anything and how much uh, so I love I know, this guy. I
0: know who this is going to be then.
1: The, the hometown boy himself, Pittsburgh's own Dan Marino. That's yeah. who I got to go with, hey because you know, of my uh, love for Dan Marino.
0: And and if you think about it this way, it makes total sense with the choice that I was going to go with. There's a few people that came to mind for me. So there's Barry Sanders, never won a championship. Um, Fucking... Charles Barkley never won a championship, Um, but mine, because it's me and my sports fandom, I'm going to go with Patrick Ewing. Yeah. I mean, he won a college, but I'm assuming not not the pros. Exactly. A professional world
1: World championship. Yeah.
0: And I mean, unless you also count him winning a gold medal with the dream team, because that's technically a world championship, but not in a, you know, it's, it's in the just, NBA, yeah, or in a it's, it's an Olympic one where it's really not fair, so yeah, uh, but it depends on how you think about it. But there's a lot of them if you think about oh, it. Oh, like there's sure. a ton that's Football. that's why I went to,
1: straight to the heart, you know, personal shit like we did.
0: Football do. has a ton of them. Um, Barry that, Sanders
1: would definitely be my runner
0: up. That That's a good one. Trying to think there's probably a few baseball players too, like when you really think about it, that never won anything that are it's pretty amazing. Uh and same thing with hockey, obviously. You know what I mean? There's probably a ton of those too. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where my mind goes to on that. Uh, you know, the greatest I mean, and then you could think too, because we talk about it on the show here a lot as far as professional wrestling. Who's the greatest professional wrestler who never won a world championship? So you Let, got let's, Owen Hart. Uh,
1: you can say Jake the Snake. Yeah. Rick Rick Rude.
0: Well, Rick Rude technically won a World
1: Yeah, WCW. That's a good call.
0: Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of them. You know what I mean? You could say,
1: you know. Hey, the subject of the show. Hey, uh, Mr. Rowdy Roddy Piper himself.
0: Uh, yeah, never won the World Championship. That's another great one, 100%. So, uh, but yeah, I figured that would make for a little interesting uh, back and forth here on the show but we have a jam-packed show as i said before guys so we are going to take our first commercial break and when we come back me and the jay are going to talk a little bit about mortal combat brand new to hbo max last weekend uh, we're going to give you our thoughts on that and much much more uh, right after this right here on the what's real podcast Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. If would you like to advertise, send us an email today. This is Ed for the What's Real podcast. Don't forget to join us for the Episode 69, Extravaganza, next week, we are going to be looking at the a and biography on the Macho Man, of Randy Sack. Thursday night prime. We're going to take a look at another Charles Bronson classic, The Evil That Men Do, from 1984. We're going to go down to the last drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs for another mystery double feature. All that and much much more next week, right here on episode 69 of the What's Real podcast. Test your might. and we're back and it's time to talk about the brand new uh, released to theaters and HBO Max as of last weekend directed by Simon McQuaid. I'm talking about 2021's Mortal Kombat uh, this is the story of washed up MMA fighter Cole Young unaware of his heritage and hunted by Emperor Shang Tsung's best warrior Sub-Zero seeks out and trains with Earth's greatest champions as he prepares to stand against the enemies of our world in a high-stakes battle for the universe. This is a New Age version of essentially a video game that became extremely popular in the mid-90s, which is totally me and the Jays' era. We were huge Mortal Kombat fans back in the day. Um, lots of
1: quarters spent, hey, yeah, lots of quarters. Yeah,
0: without a doubt, um, and I was pretty fucking good at Mortal Kombat, too. Like, that's not even... I'm not, I don't claim to be great at every video game ever created, but, like, Mortal Kombat, I could pretty much hold my weight with
1: anybody. What What was your play style? I was, I was a button masher, and it worked for me. Like, yeah. I would still do, like, mo- like, special moves and stuff. I just had a feel for just the button mashing. Because not was, everybody can do that like that, you know?
0: That was kind of, like, my get out of trouble thing. Yeah, I start things. going nuts. Like, as you can attest to with me, I have like a pretty weird talent for button mashing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, can, I, I don't lose to other people with that shit. Like, I just have a motion down that I can do it really fast. So, um, that comes in handy. But you know, I like here's how it was for me. Like, I started out as a button masher, but then there was a lot of stuff that came out at the time showing you how to do shit. So I would like try and. Because, like, you know, with Mortal Kombat, it's like everybody has different combinations, but there's always a ton of them that are the same for everybody. So, like, as long as you have those basics down, you can be pretty good at the game. So that was... Good. Yeah, or
1: there's just one, a one-button difference. It's yeah. like, you know, towards down O for one guy, and then towards down square for another guy or whatever. Yeah, yeah and, so.
0: it, and it's the same way in the arcade. So, And, of course, you had to learn all your favorite fatalities and shit like that. So. Uh the the biggest calling card for the movie though, however, the brand new one, is that this is the first time they're making an R-rated Mortal Kombat movie. So you're talking it's about time. full out violence from the game. Uh of course some colorful language thrown in there too. Now, with this movie, I mean it's the, the you, there is a Mortal Kombat universe uh that's been solidified through years of games and comics and, and even other movies and and animated films and stuff like that. Uh, And this is kind of a brand new telling of everything. So you don't have every Mortal Kombat character of all time. What you do have, though, in this movie uh, is the new character of Cole Young. You have Sonya Blade. You have Kano. You have Raiden, Jax, Liu Kang, Shang Tsung, Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Kung Lao, Melina, and Natara, Rico, Cabal, and I think that's it. And Goro. Uh, is another one that shows up yeah
1: goro pops up yeah
0: so as i said we're not going to be doing any spoilers for this so if you guys haven't watched you could probably relax um i think in the one area that both of us were expecting a lot which would be in the gore area uh the movie delivers totally it's exactly what you would want to see as far as that stuff goes they did a really good job Uh, even with the CGI and stuff like that. So I didn't have too many complaints in, in that area. So I guess the major goal that they set out to accomplish in this one, they did.
1: And off the bat as well, too, I think they made a good decision with casting, not throwing anybody at all in that's like a known commodity star. And, you know, from the guy who plays Liu Kang to, you know, even just running down the names on IMDB, it's, it's like up and coming, actors yep. so I think that was a smart thing because as we know with even the 90s one our our man friend of the show MVP of the show say it with me hey yo, Christopher Lambert. Um being in the first one uh, you know even the chick that was uh, from Billy Madison yeah for your name offhand that played Sonya Blade so so yeah the bottom line is just casting wise off the bat I think that was a good good thing because I think stealing the show I think the dude that played Kano. Luke Kane did really well uh, Jax but Kano definitely stole the show. Yeah, you are ahead of me there, but hey, good call. Yeah,
0: the only one that I had a problem with was Sonya Blade. I thought she was pretty lousy. Um, I Now, here's the thing for me. Now, I'm a fan of Mortal Kombat, right? So I didn't like a lot of the choices that they made with things that they did in the movie. And uh, for one example in the movie, and this isn't really much of a spoiler, but Reptile shows up in the movie. But he's a full lizard. He's not like a half-man, half-lizard, ninja kind of character. And they kind of did
1: that in the past one, too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I don't like that. Just try and keep it as close to the game as humanly possible. Um, Now, the big problem that this movie has for Mortal Kombat is that there's no fucking tournament in the movie. It's stupid. (laughs) It's looks that that could be potential for something in the future with Mortal They're dragon. like
1: building up the universe in the eventual tournament or something yeah, like that
0: with, with all this. It, ah, man. Like, come on, guys.
1: Because the characters still have like the, 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 you know, the scar that looks like the, the classic branding, you know, the Mortal oh, yeah. Kombat dragon and yeah. all that.
0: Which... I don't know, like on one hand I like it and on another hand I think it's like corny bullshit that they didn't really need to do but you know I can overlook something like that Uh, but the way that they build up and even the crescendo and the ending of the movie is just like a what and then they give you something at the end that happens that's like a big indicator for the future which is cool but it's also frustrating because it's like they're only holding back to give you something later so it doesn't feel like like a conscious artistic choice more as like, oh, we'll save the other characters, business money. Yeah. yeah. The
1: stuff we normally hate because, yeah, for you know, this is like the non-spoiler kind of breakdown. For those that don't know, Mortal Kombat's characters are broken up basically with the more mythological kind of fantasy characters coming from a place called Outworld that is like the villainous, um, you know. Realm coming in to our realm, which is known in the Mortal Kombat universe as Earth Realm. And as Hey It was alluding to, without the tournament, it, it's kind of like a, a red herring in a way where the whole kind of point of the plot at the beginning is setting up the fact that Outworld has won nine out of ten tournaments in Mortal Kombat. So it was kind of like a cool plot point where it's like, oh, that means that one more loss spells the end of Earth Realm and everything. And like, let's see how this plays out. But then the whole movie is based around Shang Tsung kind. Kind of sending the villains to go take out the, the Earth fighters before the tournament, yeah. and that's kind of the plot. And it's just kind of like that's a weird route to take. And what to you're make.
0: basically looking at is a movie called Mortal Kombat that's has way more to do with Mortal Kombat to the video game, than almost anything. Because this is kind of where you're at in the storyline. Because the original Mortal Kombat was all about the the Earth tournament. It's only the earthly characters. You don't get a lot of the, you know, like Cabal and, you know, the Kung Lao and shit. They didn't come along till later. And they also made an interesting choice. I'm not going to get too deep into this, but it looks like they seemingly killed some characters, one of which is definitely not dead. The other one you don't really know, but I thought it was an odd choice to make to kill something. For basically no reason, like way before you even really get started in this, it didn't make sense. I'm sure they could go back on that in a future movie anyways, but it just seemed like a really odd decision. I'm not sure if you know the one that I'm talking about.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It it was off to a really good start, too. I like how they set up the relationship and of course like setting up the two arch enemies that is Sub-Zero and Scorpion yeah. and like we said we won't get into the details but they set the origin story of that up at the outset of this movie and it looked like it was going in a pretty cool direction and I think that's the biggest problem I had with it Hey and we kind of talked about that off air uh, just a little bit of bullet points that we hit before we kind of broke it down here on the show of, of it kind of having is another one of those things that it had the potential it wet our appetite with the R-rated kind of gore factor like you mentioned but it was still kind of a, an overall miss in my opinion yeah. as far as anything that could have been epic and i think you hit the, the nail on the head off there where you mentioned to me like it's one of those ones that like a year from now i'll be like dude i can't even remember that
0: really all that much yeah it's the action isn't good enough to pass on its own uh the storyline is pretty much lazy unfortunately um, there is some cool stuff, like the, the thing that bothered me the most in this one, like you said, they did a pretty good job with handling the Scorpion Sub-Zero characters and the the storyline. But anybody that knows anything about Mortal Kombat will tell you that that's probably the most legendary story within the realm of Mortal Kombat, because these are two mortal enemies that basically fight forever. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither one can really die. So it's like, you know, it's it's basically set up to fight forever. Um, and then them interjecting this brand new character of Cole Young into that legacy was terrible. a really, really bad mistake. It's the most bland character in the movie by far, and he has the most important role. That's a huge <laughs> yeah, that was a mistake. big mistake. That's yeah.
1: great call and, and you know yeah. what
0: here Here's another thing too. you know you mentioned how they didn't get any like major name actors or anything like that. This is the one character in the movie that needed to be played by a marquee actor. If you wanted it to be important at all, it just, that's a good played point by a brand new actor. It just feels super unimportant. The dude's super dry. Uh, they add in a, a little side story with his family that you couldn't care less about. Um, and it bogs the movie down more than it helps it or makes it interesting.
1: Very bland. And speaking of that, that's the, another issue that I would point out where there was just, Times it really dragged in this, and I kind of realized it at the end because you don't think of it going in. You're you're pumped for a Mortal Kombat movie. I watched this at a pretty good time for my schedule, just like Saturday evening. Like I think I started at six on Saturday, you know. So I was like pretty energetic to watch this, and, and was really into it. And it just uh, again, it wet my appetite enough, but didn't blow me away by any stretch. And yeah, it had some really dry periods, like building up kind of goofy things. And and like the one comment from one of the reviews I pulled up as a reference said it should really be illegal to make a video game film that's almost as long as judas and the black messiah
0: <laughs> so, yeah i agree cuz it's I, almost
1: 2 hours long yeah, and it, it kind of dragged along and
0: and i would agree with that cuz it's about 15 to maybe even 20 minutes too long um yeah that's that, what i thought too it's it, it, sometimes simple and easy is better and i think that would have been the case here so uh the j you got a tagline for us on this one
1: i'll go a little bit away from the mic for this tagline for mortal Kombat 2021 hey Ed. Get over here, which is the tagline,
0: which like, I totally understand the tagline, but like after you see the movie, does that make any sense at all in the grand scheme? No, of they
1: they should have, they should have went. That's, that's the other part. Good, good point to, to throw out here at the kind of wrap up of the review here for us where they, there was Easter eggs. They were pretty good towards Mortal Kombat. Again, the big gimmick here is, is the first R rated one with some gore, but they still didn't really utilize the mythos to where they could have. With things yeah. they made like you you were calling it they made some weird decisions. It's, I don't know if they were trying to be too different or something, but yeah, like this, this kind of threw things off with some of those those decisions.
0: Well, dude, it reeks of somebody that just doesn't understand the source material,
1: and yeah, and producers and shit. Like we can't do
0: that, yeah, or like people that just don't really get why people like this or what's important about it or something so yeah I, I don't know i think ultimately this one's a disappointment uh as you guys know we do a five-star rating scale here on the show i'm gonna give this one only two and a half it's pretty disappointing
1: i'm um, so funny we were arguing a little bit with marino hey yeah but yeah i'm, I'm right with you i concur two and a half for mortal Kombat 2021.
0: So, yeah, that one's a bit of a disappointment. You can check that out on HBO Max right now if you are a subscriber. I definitely recommend it. That's how you see it. Don't don't waste a trip to the theater to see this. Uh, it's not worth it in the least. So we are going to take another quick commercial break, and when we come back, uh, me and the J are going to be down at the old drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs, uh, the last drive-in, if you will, with a double feature review of Audition, and Class of 1984. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast.
1: Hey, everyone. It's the Jay from the What's Real Podcast. Here today to talk about churchhillpictures.com churchill pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in churchill borough just outside of pittsburgh pennsylvania jared bajoris and damiano fusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007 deference winner of the silver ace award at the las vegas film festival in 2012. go to churchillpictures.com to check out our original trailers Documentaries, comedy sketches, the entire history of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW, exclusive independent wrestling content, and exclusive videos showcasing our next huge film project entitled The Marks. This includes an appearance from our character, the feature presentation, Johnny Starr, on the streaming talk show Alone Together Pittsburgh. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Go to churchillpictures.com today.
0: And we're back, and me and the J here are down at the last drive-in, courtesy of our friend Joe Bob Briggs, uh, where we're going to do a double feature review of Audition and Class of 1984. First up was the first feature from 1998-99, if you will, from director Takashi Miike. Uh, This is Audition. This is probably his most famous film. Uh, So seven years after the death of his wife, Company executive Ayoma is inv- invited to sit in on auditions for an actress. Leafing through the resumes in advance, his eye is caught by Yam y- uh, Asami.
1: Yeah, it's tough to pronounce.
0: Yamazaki Asami, a striking young woman with ballet training. So he he essentially sets up these auditions to kind of find a girlfriend. His his buddy sets these up, and he gets a. Uh, a weird plethora of women to come in, and he sort of obsesses over this particular one, not realizing the kind of person that he's dealing with. Um, Audition is kind of a slow burn movie, which is very weird for Takashi Miike, because it's not really how he does things. He's known for like doing things in the first five minutes of a movie that just completely fucking blow your mind. Uh, that's not what Audition is. And I think that's why so many people like it. I think it's accessible to more people than a lot of the stuff that he makes. It's just really weirdo, wacko stuff. It's great, but most people have no interest in things like that. Yeah, this
1: has the potential for more mass appeal.
0: Absolutely. Um, It's a very creepy movie. It's an interesting movie um, because I think most of the time you're just kind of sitting around like, analyzing the human nature of everything going around around on all these characters. Cause you, you, have flawed characters such as him. He's clearly, uh, you know, mourning his wife still. And there, there's definitely a lot of shit there. He's dealing with a teenage son and like trying to find ways to connect with his son. And he's having friends kind of like pushing him about getting back into the dating pool. And it's, you know, it's obviously a morality play too, but then it also shows this other side of like, you know, things aren't always what they seem and it's a really haunting movie. And I think that's part of the reason too why audition has garnered such a legacy through the years.
1: Yeah, and speaking of watching this within the last drive-in, leading into the night, Joe Bob was specifically saying that these are two of his favorite movies to talk about, and he was saying like somebody will need to stop me, and he did good as always, but I think that kind of overhyped it for me as I always say because I was, I don't know, I you know, again said some solid stuff in in, in both of the the films and in the in betweens that he does, but. I don't think there was anything, um, and I'm sure if, if it wasn't for me, it definitely wasn't for you that really blew your mind no, between them, you know, you know, here, the way he said it. But
0: here's the thing that I did like about this show a lot, um, and with both movies too. A lot of this was filled with his theories and things about what these movies were, which I prefer that to just factoids because I know about That's a, good a lot point. of these movies already. Um, so kind of hearing his, you know, like he'll be like, you know, some people say this is a feminist movie. Other people say this is a misogynist movie. I think this or like there's the one basically it's in between. There's a really good. uh, This is probably my favorite part on the audition aspect of Joe Bob this week was, you know, in audition, there's that one quick scene where they kind of flash that picture of his wife and she's like standing behind a tree or something. And he. Right. Yeah, exactly. Down. And I even disagree with what he thinks it is. Um, but I think it's super creepy in the movie and I think it's one of the most fun things to talk about in audition. Okay. So with that being said, and obviously you, you watched the show. So you saw that breakdown. What do you think that that part means in the grand scheme of this movie? Like, what do you see that as?
1: So he talked with his uh, director that was off screen on the set about it and his director's take was the director's take or Joe Bob's take that it was, like, the supernatural, like...
0: That was the director, of believe.
1: Okay, because that's kind of what I was thinking Joe, initially. Like, Joe
0: Bob disagreed with that, with what he said.
1: Right. He, he, so he would probably disagree with me because uh, you could kind of break down what with, with Joe Bob said. But I was kind of with more or less the director's kind of take on it than Joe Bob's.
0: Well, he said that it was kind of like... Uh, The last grasps of his wife, like in mourning, it's like his wife kind of like getting further and further away from. Yeah, she's like fading out. Yeah. Yeah. See, and I think I disagree with all of that. I think that that's like showing like how her the shadow of her death is still following him around, even though it's fading day by day. It's still a constant reminder of his dead wife like so it almost
1: represents his grief yeah
0: it represents his grief and maybe kind of shows how he's making like poor decisions and why he's making them in the movie compared to things that like when his wife was alive he never would have did something like this he was happy it's would have felt like a creepy thing to do but in this he's like well he feels bad for himself so he's like i'm allowed this thing you know which is creepy as fuck to do like fake auditions try and like get information on a bunch of women that you'd like to date like it's a it's a shitty thing to do and these are women that are looking for work too and that's part plays into this too because like she was rejected on a role, uh and it basically drove her insane so like when people don't respond to her the way that she likes it it she completely turns into like a murderous lunatic
1: yeah whatever that's her trigger is whenever she's fully rejected yes It's just like snap. And
0: that's kind of a cool thing about this movie, too, because I think that like everyone that that's like a a universal trait, like everybody understands what rejection feels like on some level. And this movie conveys that and it kind of has like this muddled morality of everyone involved. So like you feel bad for the guy because of his wife dying and, you know, he just can't really he's not really together. Then you feel bad for her because she's like small and unassuming and like is apparently had a difficult life. But then they switch all of that on you with all of the characters. And it's a it's a weird feeling you get going through the movie. And I I appreciate that because it's 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 kind of an off balance movie in a good way for the viewer. It keeps you guessing with the way that all these characters work. And I think that that's another ultimate power uh, that this movie has over a lot of the other stuff that you see on Last Drive-In and even other Mike stuff.
1: Yeah, because this is probably my third viewing of Audition and it's been a while. And this is one of those ones that you have a completely different perspective, like so many great films, especially by great genius directors like this that has multi-layered and, and, you know, social commentary within it and, you know, intellectual theories like we're putting together, like everybody can kind of have a different take on certain scenes and certain things he put in there and all that. So you love it. And it's definitely worth multiple views, but this is one that I go back to like the first time I watched it and how good that first watch was when you don't really know where it's going. Yeah. Like that yep. was that was before I read a lot. I just remember you guys like, you know, I think I, I mentioned to you again, like off air leading into this, when you asked me like the last time I watched it, we were kind of talking about it, that this was like the incredibly strange days, yeah. which for those listening was the, the little local video store we used to go to, to to purchase movies and BS with our other cinephile friends and everything. And yeah, you guys put me on audition. So uh, again, that's kind of the best way to see a movie, just knowing nothing about it. You're kind of like where is this going? But, but again, on the third viewing and and with the knowledge of it, then you look for, for more stuff and you try to pick up on more of the intellectual aspects. Yeah.
0: I've probably seen, I was trying to think of that when I watched this, like how many times have I seen this? And I kind of concluded it's probably like anywhere from six to seven times at this point that I've seen it. And it's the same kind of way. I think I'm getting to the point though, where I've gotten enough out of it. Like it's, I don't really need to see it for a long time. Yeah. It's really slow. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's great for the first-time viewer. It's perfect the way that they do it. But Yeah, but the sixth time. Yeah, it's like, you know, <laughs> could I, definitely I be slow parts. something a little bit more action-packed. But, I mean, I'm not complaining. I understand what it is. Um, it's a really, really interesting flick and a really, really good movie overall. Um, I know that uh, we've talked about this before. We both enjoy this movie. Uh, you know, Miike is a really cool director. He's one of the most prolific directors of all time. Um, he's been a director since 1991 and he has over 112 films. Uh, specifically Joe brought it up in 1999 when he made audition, he had already made about 35 films. So in a short period. Of yeah. Time, crazy. Um, he's slowed down significantly through the years, but, uh, just to give you guys an idea, you might be familiar with some of this stuff. He's also the director of Ichi the killer, 13 assassins, happiness of the Kudakara visitor Q, uh, one missed call dead or alive. Um, you know, I mean, there's so many, there's a Dead Alive series too, which is basically Graveyard of Honor. And, and we talked
1: about, he did stuff. the, the Masters of Horror episode that kind of got print. banned yep. in print.
0: So, you know, he's done a lot of stuff and a lot of it's different. Everything from horror movies to Yakuza movies to just oddball like david Lynchian weird shit movies uh he's a really cool director so and this is definitely among uh you know his best movies for sure i love 13 assassins that's, that's a really great. good one i agree it's like his
1: his kind of shout out to karasawa yeah in a lot of ways of course the samurai in his own
0: weird kind of way yeah
1: fucked up way
0: um but the J, you got a tagline for us on this one
1: so the tagline for audition that i got "Hey, you know, here on what's real she always gets a part
0: And that's a great one for this one. And (laughs) play on words. It's a five star rating scale here. I'm going to go with four stars for audition.
1: All right. I got three and a half right behind you. Hey, you. All
0: right. So next up in the last drive in this week is a pretty interesting movie from 1982. It's also interesting on our show because it's from director Mark L. Lester. Uh, You guys will remember we talk about his movies on here quite a bit. He's directed Armed and Dangerous, Commando, Firestarter, Showdown in Little Tokyo, Roller Boogie, Night of the Running Man, Extreme Justice. um, You know, and on and on and on and on all kinds of other fun stuff. White House Madness and, you know, Class of 1999, which is technically the sequel to this one. But this is one of the first ones that really put him on the map uh, to the world uh it is about a new teacher named andy at an inner city high school that is unlike any he has seen before there are metal detectors at the front door and the place is basically run by a tough kid named peter stegman soon andy and stegman become enemies and stegman will stop at nothing to protect his turf and drug dealing business from the teacher uh now this is what i like about mark lester uh he's pretty effective as a filmmaker because he kind of makes the characters the way they need to be. And this is like, there's a lot of eighties movies and stuff like this with like the shitty kids at school that kind of terrorize everybody. These are amongst some of the sleaziest that did exist in that, that genre or subgenre, I should say. Um, And a lot of that has to do with Mark Lester, basically letting them sleaze it up as much as they possibly wanted to. Um, and also it should be mentioned, and this is pretty crazy because he talked about this a lot. Uh, meaning Joe Bob is Peter Stegman was played by Timothy van Patten, fresh off of one of my favorite television shows of all time called the white shadow uh, about uh, a white basketball coach in the inner city. And uh, he was like the troubled kid on the show. And he plays the lead troubled kid in this movie. He's a prick. He's great. Um, also, we have Roddy McDowell and Michael J. Fox in this one. Uh, Michael J. Fox playing one of his uh, first roles. Joe Bobby even mentions he got the job for Family Ties when he was making this movie. And Roddy McDowell in a supporting role here, too. And again, Roddy McDowell is great in everything.
1: And, exactly. And this
0: movie is proof of that. It's such a minor role, but he makes it such a big deal. It's a fucking joy to see. Um, It's also weird, too, because I always feel like Perry King was miscast as Andy, the teacher, but he does a pretty good job at it. I don't know what about it I don't like, but that's only really ever been my only problem with this movie.
1: I thought he was okay. I mean, that's the thing. This is definitely a character, well, of course, ultimately character actor driven film, but the characters uh, are great in this. You know, the Stegman's gang, they all have like unique names like drugstore and barnyard and things like that. You know, and then, then of course you have the detectives that are involved and the principal where Perry King's character, Andrew Norris, eventually starts going to them. Like, dude, why do you keep, taking the kid's side and, and like bitching at us because he's trying to tell them like all the fucked up stuff that's going on, you know, and yeah. like, like the, the principal's character's excuse is he's like, well, you know, the teacher's got to be held accountable. You're adults. You know, we're trying to teach these troubled kids and all that sort of thing. So it made sense. You know, but, but yeah, that was, that was the biggest strength throughout this movie was, was both the way that the characters in in particular were, and then, of course, all the actors portraying them. Because with this being Michael J. Fox's one of his first roles, I mean, obviously he was like picture perfect as like the nerdy band kid that that ends up as like, you know, the the one that gets the most abuse from the gang and things for the most part, and then can possibly testify against them. Because as you know, Hey Ed, he's actually credited in, in this. This was pre Michael J. Fox days. He was just Michael fox
0: in the credits old michael fox <laughs> yeah, another weird. one of my
1: aliases
0: but yeah i mean dude this is it, it's really this is like a, a ongoing theme i feel like of this last several weeks here on the show because this is another one of those movies that is way better than it really should be um everything yeah. just fl- fell into place really good cast nice sleazy fucking story like i just like i like that about it. It works. It pisses you off. It makes you really fucking hate, like, the drug-dealing punks of the school. Like, it's, it's effective in what it does. And it, it's really frustrating, too, because, like, you know, the, these kids are terrorizing this teacher. And the teacher doesn't get a whole lot of one-ups on them throughout the movie. I mean, they're, like, totally fucking him up the whole way. And it's just, it's a, it really builds to the end of the movie and stuff. And I feel like that's like the perfect way to make something like this. And it's just, it's really, really difficult for me to pick out much that I didn't like about it because I think it hits every note that it should.
1: This is almost like what trauma always goes for, you know, Lester show. Yeah, th- Cause that's, is, it, it kind of reminded me of really good trauma. Yes. This is like, like a, movie that a, a level that
0: they in try, try and make their own version of that's not as good.
1: Yeah, because it had all that kind of stuff, like you know, uh, there was the th- one one chick that was going to be a coke whore and uh, be a prostitute for the gang yep. for it to be paid in coke and just gets full frontal butt naked. Yep. So you know, always got to shout out the full frontal nudity and uh, yeah, some some definite gore and, and violence
0: and dude, it's, throughout it, they even there's even some really good stuff that Joe Bob landed on this one too, like the uh, the woman that plays uh, Andy Norris's wife in the movie. Uh, she got her role in the movie because she was the one that helped raise uh, helped raise three and a half million dollars for them to make the movie. So like once she came to the table with that, they said, oh, well, we'll, we'll write you a role. And this woman basically plays a woman, uh, you know, a guy's wife who gets like terrorized and raped and everything else. Prago wife, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she was basically, from what I understand, from what Joe Bob's Joe Bob said, a soap opera actress. And, uh, but she was willing to go the fucking limit for this movie because, I mean, they she did a really good job. She's good in it. And, uh, you know, she's not really a casted actor, it's just somebody that got brought in because of circumstance and it ended up working out pretty well. And Joe Bob even seemed to be pretty fond of the role, too.
1: Yeah, like Joe Bob said, the the gang rape scene that was brutal, like any scene like that would be, of course, was way longer. You know, it's one of those things. Against the ratings board, they had to cut it down a lot. Which it's funny whenever that gets brought up, and it's like a brutal scene to begin with, and you're like, man. Like I don't agree with the ratings board too much, but like you know, that was that was enough for what it was. Because even Joe Bob's like, yeah, there was supposedly another two minutes of that or whatever it was. Like, yeah,
0: but they're so fucking inconsistent with that stuff. Well,
1: that's the problem. That's yeah, that's a whole other diatribe for sure. That's
0: true, but you know, ultimately, I think this movie uh, completely you know exceeds expectations and and does what it set out to do uh, brilliantly. Uh, It's a pretty underrated cult classic flick. Uh, Mark Lester movies pretty much deliver every time out for a reason. Uh, The dude knows how to make something entertaining and he knows how to bring it on on budget. And that's why he has such a prolific career. And it's why in the short time period of our show here, just over the first year and a half, let's say, we've reviewed so much of his stuff. Um, And it was completely inadvertent that that's happened. It's just it keeps popping up and it, it works out for the show. And it always ends up being something solid, so uh, I definitely like this one for sure. Uh, so the jade, we have a tagline for this one.
1: Tagline for Mark Lester's class of 1984. Hey, yo, we are the future, and nothing can stop us.
0: And I actually found another one too. It says, "Class of 1984, is this the future?" So, uh, you know, they they, they
1: rhetorical question. Exactly. Hey,
0: exactly. So. <laughs> uh, and as we do here on the show on our five-star rating scale, again, I'm going to go with four stars. It's a pretty good, uh, top-notch week this week for, uh, Joe Bob.
1: Again, for the J I'm right behind you with another three and a half or so
0: pretty solid week overall of flicks from our buddy Joe Bob. Of course, next week on the show, we're going to check out two more. Uh, this, uh, streams every Friday night at 9 PM Eastern on the shutter app. If you guys want to watch along with us you can do so on shutter you can order it's fairly cheap it's like 4.99 or 5.99 a month and they give you a free trial to start out with if you guys want to and, check it out
1: and real quick hey ed to wrap up the our trip to the drive-in here as we shut down the drive-in and head to our next segment Uh, They actually pinned uh, through Joe Bob's Twitter account some clues for next week. So let me throw that at you right here, breaking on the podcast. So from Joe Bob Briggs' Twitter, clues for this week's The Last Drive-In. First up is a sequel to a horror classic paying homage to a sequel to a horror classic. Second is one of those rediscoveries that cause a director to be recognized 30 years later. As usual, kinky horror, Darcy will break ties and award prizes for those to pick, so some cool clues there. Hey, you know, can ponder those leading into Friday. Yeah,
0: I have no idea off the top of my head. So.
1: Neither does the J.
0: So, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I've always enjoyed that. So, expect another double feature of mystery reviews as we head to the Joe Bob Drive-In uh, next week. So, we are going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the A and E biography of Rowdy Roddy Piper, one of our favorites of all time. So we will be back right after this on in the What's Real podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at cutandrunstudios.com. And we're back. And it's time to get into the brand new biography that premiered this past Sunday night at 9 p.m. on A&E on none other than WWE legend, Hall of Famer, uh, whatever you want to say, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, We talked about the first week uh, of this show last week with Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I got to say, man, uh, that was really good. So I was curious to see how this was going to kind of live up to it. And I got to say, man, it definitely lived up to the billing. This is probably even better than the show last week. I
1: I agree, dude. I like this better than than the Stone Cold one. And I have to say, that's saying a lot.
0: Absolutely. So they give you the origin story of Roddy Piper. Now, this is kind of weird because uh, Piper has... He's been known to kind of live off the streets and stuff when he was younger and he kind of scrapped for everything that he had. But here's the thing. Not too many people really know the actual history of Roddy Piper. Uh, and I should say Roderick Toombs, his real name, um, because the, alls we have is essentially what he's told us and nobody can corroborate a lot of it. So they give you the, the kayfabe, so to speak, version of it on this, which I was expecting. Um, but it's not disappointing. It's, it's like I said, it's what I expected and it's kind of the the story of his origins by his family. So it's probably what they were told by him. It is what it is. And of course they get into his early beginnings as a wrestler all the way through his entire career. Uh, the thing that I was impressed with uh, with the most on this one, just like I was last time with the stone cold one is just, these are great two hour documentaries And I was really impressed with the detail that they went to with a lot of the stuff, even with the footage and stuff. They really, you know, they went back in time and got some great stuff, most likely working with WWE. But nonetheless, they managed to get the most important stuff they could possibly get on Piper.
1: That that's what makes these man. It's it's the the team behind it. You know, they have guys that worked on the the great amazing documentary on HBO of Andre that kind of started this. You know, they got guys from like E30 and things like that. So a top-notch crew putting this together is huge. And on top of that what they're kind of doing, like you would be remiss to bring up the comparisons, of course, to Dark Side of the Ring. And where Dark Side of the Ring is exactly that, the gimmick of the show is to go to the unfortunate side of professional wrestling and the behind-the-scenes to some really dark stories, this, this kind of has a better mix, which kind of has me I'm, – I'm, I, I wouldn't say necessarily I like it more than Dark Side of the Ring, but it's extraordinarily – Comparable, in my opinion. And one of the things that puts it up there for me, the AE biography version is the balance of it where they do show the the highs but then of course the lows and just like we covered in the Stone Cold one where Stone Cold was known as this very personal guy and the, the kind of breaking thing in his episode was the fact that he did talk about his estranged relationship with his daughters and how they're trying to repair it and talked about his daughters for the first time this biography on Piper has of course his wife because he, he did pass away kind of kind of young overall yeah, pretty full life but 61's you know, in 2021 he's pretty young. So his kids are like, you know, basically college age or young adults for the most part. And and they were all in it, and were a great part of this. So having his whole family in it and their take on it, they actually talked about his suicidal tendencies and his depression and his drinking and partying days and things like that. And we'll get into everything, but just at the outset, uh, kind of an overview That's that's kind of where I really like these. They go, you know, like we're always kind of curious if they're going to sugarcoat things or or where they're going to be able to go. And so far, in two episodes of this, again, they they go into to all the places of these guys, you know, multi tiered lives. Like it's not a black and white thing. Like like most of our lives, there's a lot of gray area, and they cover all of that from the Stone Cold one and throughout the Piper one as well.
0: See, we last week on the show before we did the review of the Stone Cold one we brought up this article that NBC News put out, kind of saying, like, you know, these are all the same story. And we vehemently disagreed with that. And I think it couldn't be more abundantly clear by the second one here, uh, the Roddy Piper one. The Stone Cold one was more about his journey to become a star and how he had a hard time letting go of the persona uh, once his career was over. And Roddy Piper's story was more of an unlikely... Uh, like up-and-coming kid story Uh, and it was pretty clear that Piper there were two different Roddy Pipers there was the guy at home and then there was the guy that we saw on television and they made that abundantly clear throughout this entire thing Um, so that alone is significantly different to me it's even a different approach that two wrestlers took to their careers and it's two significant significantly different wrestlers and people in real life so It's it's a really good story. Uh, Piper's story is a good one anyways. I've read his book. I've actually had the opportunity to meet Roddy Piper before he passed, and it was a great moment. Yeah, so cool. Um, I I was really, really thankful that I had that opportunity because I'd always been such a big fan of Piper's. And I thought that they did his career and his life justice with this. Um, Like you said, they bring in the family and stuff uh, to talk about, uh, you know, how he was personally and what he was like as a dad, as a father, as a husband, what have you. And then, of course, too, and this is one of the things that I really enjoyed with this is they focused a lot on Piper's work in Los Angeles, in Portland, uh, Mid Atlantic, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, They even talked about how he was brought in first as a commentator, and it was done as like almost a red herring to kind of that was awesome. He's a big mouth jerk, but he could actually Bruce Bruce Prichard broke that down. Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's great. I love how they did that. Um, Piper's earlier work, his pre WWF eighty four work, is some of the best stuff of his career, and I was really happy to see that not only get highlighted in this, but kind of show as those are being his formative years, and we wouldn't have got the character that he became without that time period. So I thought that was wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's where he kind of got his mic skills and promo skills as crisp as can be before he came to WWF.
0: Absolutely. So um, now, of course, you got to call out the one bullshit thing that you hear in this and this is the moment that i had in this documentary when hogan was talking about how piper didn't want to do jobs and it cost him money and i'm like that's pretty fucking rich coming from you dude who literally has a whole career <laughs> yeah. jobs for a whole myriad of fucking people um so that was a, a tall tale it's kind of well that's you know shows why i don't really care for hogan still to this day. Yeah, that just
1: goes into one of my first main bullet points, hey, Ed, is like the two positive relationships that were throughout this that were great, which was Rowdy's relationship and friendship with Ric Flair and Bret Hart, and then the two love-hate relationship ones with, of course, Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan. And that was a cool contrast throughout this.
0: Absolutely. And it was cool too, I thought, because there's... There's clearly some sort of a switch with Piper. Like, he's this sweet guy at home, uh, family man, slash complete wild man on the roads. Like, a guy that people were afraid of. People didn't want to ride with him. People, You never know what Piper's going to do. Like, that kind of a thing. And, uh, and of course, they, they get into the whole deal with Mr. T in WrestleMania 1. Like I mentioned, Hogan said about Piper not wanting to do jobs and things like that. He was just watching his own ass. And I mean, I think it was pretty clear too why he got out of the business originally in 1987. Uh, He had the opportunity to make they live with John Carpenter. And that was supposed to be his last hurrah in the world of wrestling. Um, It wasn't, um, but it was supposed to be. And I think that Piper was trying to move on from the WWF at the time because he saw that his character was not going up the card and it was either going to cost him money in the long run or cost him a lot of time. That's going to cost him a lot of money in the long run. So I think that he was ready to move on there. And even though he went back, he kind of always held that power because he wasn't a a full-time wrestler. He could come and go as he pleased.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing about it is that it just shows you that at that time, Hulk Hogan gets credited as maybe being the first to, to break Hollywood with, with his level of fame and stuff. It was like inevitable, but as his daughter said, like, Piper was before that. Piper was really, truly the first professional wrestler to really break the glass ceiling into Hollywood with "They Live."
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: and, and of course, you know, car- Carpenter pops in there just while we're at it. Of um, you know, they throughout this thing, which was really cool. They they kind of show you some some cuts of Piper's writings, and he says like, "Yeah, people think I just came up with all this stuff off the cuff." He's like, "That's." the opposite of the case. He's like, this takes so much time and energy. And I had a notebook and they show you like all his writings. And like, I'm sure the family gave them the permission and like, he would come up with all these different quotes and things. And of course he was showing John Carpenter and he's like, we could incorporate maybe some of this into my character for they live. And of course, one of them was the, inf- not infamous, the famous, I'm all out of bubblegum line. And that was a cool kind of backstory yeah. thing.
0: And that's a great thing that, you know, he gives, there, there's a reason why I wanted Piper for that role. He knew Piper could kind of tackle the subject matter and be right for it. He's perfect for that character. Um, I really like too in this kind of how they show, like, like you said with his writings, with a lot of the family footage and stuff that they gave them, uh, that you didn't really get this, you know, you're seeing Piper on Christmas morning and stuff like that. So that's all pretty, pretty cool insight into his personal life. Um, now, the thing that kind of sucks about Piper, and we all knew this, but he kind of continued on way too long. And I don't mean that he stunk or we didn't want to see him anymore. It was just the fact of the matter that, like, his body was really breaking down on him. And, you know, he kind of did that kiss my foot match against Jerry Lawler and WWF. And then I believe that's when he got his hip replacement, like after that. And he was never really the same again, but he would continue on to wrestle because there was money to be made. So. Um, it's pretty unfortunate, but it's like, man, that second half of Piper's career probably didn't do him any favors physically.
1: We said for us on a personal level that we watched together, shout out to our buddy Squid. And we would watch WCW live events at Squid's house when it was that infamous horrific flair piper cage match Oh, hogan piper that was that was or hogan piper i'm sorry because that was back in the day where the wcw pay-per-view was like so strong until the main event it was like the opposite of wwe attitude era at the time like where the attitude era the main events were strong in wwf but most of the undercard was shitty and then wcw was kind of known as having the better undercard overall and well-paced and then it's just shitty main events but that one sticks out because we love piper so much and that was just an abomination and again it's just because he couldn't go and like you said i mean more power to him if they're going to put him in the main event you know he's going to still try to do it yeah of
0: course he's he's a consummate professional i mean i think that's something else that this shows too like Regardless of the issues that he had and stuff like working and everything, he was always worthwhile to have around on some capacity. Um, But, you know, it shows the good and bad of Piper's life and and his passing and everything. And I thought that, you know, everything felt complete. I didn't think there was a whole lot of stuff that they left out. I mean, I understand some of the stuff that they left out and why they did so. um, But it wasn't really a big deal to me. I found this to be pretty good. I was definitely happy with it. Um, You know, I look forward to watching these each and every week. And it's kind of cool, too, because they already announced the one for next week is Macho Man Randy Savage. So, like, these only seem to be, yeah. be up from here, man. I definitely enjoyed this, though, and I recommend it. And uh, as I said when we started this, not only do I like it, but I liked it better than the Austin one the first week.
1: Before we take it home, see what I did there? Hey, you know, the wrestling terms. When you take it home, you're closing on a match. Wanted to shout out the involvement and relationship that he had with Jean LaBelle.
0: That's re- no, yeah, that was really, really fucking cool, cool that shit. Was one of my favorite. Things. And of course,
1: in turn, uh, Ronda Rousey. Yeah. of course, that, who was that
0: To me, felt tacked on, but I mean, I understand why they did it. I don't really have a problem with it, but and I'll take it as a fair trade off. If they had to do that to kind of, you know, get Jean LaBelle in it, then I'm all for it. It was great.
1: Yeah, because, yeah, what a story, man, from living on the streets as a teenager, which they said caused a lot of his demons. You know, he had some really rough patches in his early life and things like that with his family and stuff to to become an icon and a legend like he did. You know, those stories are always just amazing to relive, you know, because it's like one of those things, man, as a kid growing up and everything, you just don't get the whole grasp of it until you get older and the whole thing of hindsight. Uh, you know, cause guys that are successful, it's kind of like quote unquote, they make it look easy, yep. you know, but then you see the struggles and the fact that like stars align and timing and things for, for somebody to become an icon like this. And uh, yeah, Piper's definitely that just, uh, Just an amazing overall guy, man. It's just so cool to see that he was such a a family man. And and, and some of the highlights, too, um, not to be all over the place, but just wrapping up some some last-minute bullet points was, of course, uh, we kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but when he was paired with Ric Flair... And they were just on the road, just getting it yep. in. And they kind of sold, told some stories about those two partying together in their prime, which was probably absolutely out of this world. Ridiculous. Yeah.
0: It's uh it was really, really cumbersome too. Like I, I felt that they did a really good job getting a little bit of everything out of that. So uh, you know, I was definitely satisfied with it and I look forward to uh, weeks here in the future with uh, you know, them pulling out more episodes. So We'll have to see how they go week to week. But definitely the uh, Roddy Piper A&E biography is a winner uh, by all cases here from us at the What's Real podcast. So um, we definitely need to take a break here because I have a grown naked man standing here.
1: I was just gonna say, there's explosions in the background here, and they're getting Which closer. And I can't afford any more scars, hey Ed. So I, I kind of re-rig my route to the uh, bunker. So I have to go because Katie's getting pissed with me adding up more scars than I already have. So I'll be back. You call it out.
0: Take us I'm out. I'm weirded out here, so I'm gonna shut it. We'll be back, I guess, after this on the, uh, the on the next real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better for you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, And excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing, physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to Better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. It's
2: time for Thursday Night Pride.
0: That's right. It's time once again for the most painful segment to me in the J. I was
1: going to say, man. Oh, oh, my sore. So the
0: naked man's gone. The J's wounds are <sighs> healing up here so far.
1: It's
2: all
0: right. Uh, I'll be all right. But, it is time for Thursday Night Prime, and this week we're going to go back to 1983 for, for some more Charles Bronson goodness. This time from director J. Lee Thompson. We're talking 10 to midnight. Uh, based on the real-life Richard Speck murders, um, after his bizarre behavior results in rejection from countless women, Warren Stacy begins murdering women, always while he is naked, which minimizes any physical evidence left behind. Detective Leo Kessler is convinced of Stacy's guilt and over the objection of his partner, plants evidence to get him behind bars. When Stacy is released on a technicality, he threatens to go after Kessler and his family, leaving Kessler to defend himself with little help from the police. Um again, this is not much different than, you know, Death Wish with a naked serial killer. That's pretty much what they were going for here. Um but what you get is a, a, an actually a pretty interesting movie. So first up, you have Charles Bronson, as I mentioned. You have Lisa Eilbacher, uh, who shows up in Beverly Hills Cop. She's like Axel's friend in L.A. Uh, that he hooks up with uh, to kind of get set up out there. Of course, Andrew Stevens from 90s. Uh, of course, film. our man. Uh, Jeffrey Lewis shows up in this one as Dave Dante, the uh, attorney. The lawyer. Uh, Wilford Brimley shows up in this. Robert Lyons. Ola Ray shows up, uh, of course, from the uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller video. Kelly Preston shows up here. Paul McCallum uh, is in this one, too. Uh, Pretty decent cast. Uh, Again, this is a canon film. Uh, And, of course, J. Lee Thompson, the director, is more familiar with uh, Charles Bronson than most. He directed Death Wish 4. Uh, Firewalker uh cape fear the original happy birthday to me um Kinjate, uh murphy's law which we reviewed a, a couple of weeks ago and he also directed the evil that men do which is going to be right here on the segment next week just a little hint there so um but yeah man uh overall this is one of the stronger uh ones to me it's it's sleaze-filled and it's a pretty nasty movie overall, but you know, Bronson brings it, everybody's good. Um, the character actors in this one all hold their ground pretty well. Um, now, of course, this one is completely hung, and I, yes, I do mean that on purpose, it's completely pun, yeah, intended. pun intended. Uh, as the Warren Stacy character played by Gene Davis is pretty memorable, and not just the fact that he's naked killing people. But uh, he's a pretty weird guy, and that's a pretty memorable performance, in my opinion.
1: He did great. He stole the show. Ding, ding, ding for the show steal of the week, even amongst Bronson. And like you said, a slew of classic character actors. What a performance. I mean, that really made it. You need somebody to you know, bring it home that's in such an important role in this. And this dude, you know, Gene Davis, no relation to Gina Davis, definitely stole the show.
0: Yeah, he does a great job as the serial killer. Uh, he's creepy when he needs to be he's the straight man when he needs to be it just works uh, perfectly in the role Uh, and Bronson is a really good foil for him too because like you kind of feel like this and I like this too because this is like one of those instances where it's a cop movie so we're going to remove it from the death wish world here for a second where the lead cop isn't like some massive piece of shit like he isn't a drunk he isn't some fucking loser asshole who just happens to be a good cop. Like he's just a good dude.
1: Yeah, and the and the mind games of the serial killer end up making him look like a dickhead because you know he like plants evidence that he gets busted for, and that whole subplot in the middle that was really good, and and you know what? Probably the most dynamic aspect of the. The plot and kind of the backbone that I really enjoyed was the chemistry between the rookie cop and Bronson because this rookie cop gets brought in at the beginning of the movie and of course gets teamed up with Bronson, who's kind of reluctant, but he was a really unique character. Yeah. And that dude did really good in the part, you know, cuz everybody like his gimmick is everybody's like you don't seem like a cop. And he's like I've never heard that before cuz he just seems like this real wholesome. He's almost like you, you use the example uh with when we were talking about Christine when we were kind of breaking down Carpenter's movies on a on a past podcast where uh the the lead character's best friend in that is kind of like the just all American classic guy that like the girls want to be around and the guys want to chill with. And he's like friends with everybody that was kind of like the character of this, this cop, he was just like, kind of like just the wholesome all American kind of guy. And that the chemistry that played really well with, with Bronson's character throughout this. And it really carried
0: the consistent voice of morality in the movie that's uh that's he's kind of the good exactly, yeah. the story together too which i really like yeah
1: uh, that's all i wanted to um, mention that that was important and of
0: course they had the perfect character like i said the lisa Eilbacher character uh is perfect because she could play the foil and she's like bait for the serial killer um it it all just really works and see this this is the one thing that i'll say about this movie and this is also a reason why i totally understand why J. lee thompson would get this movie In 1983, he's such a film veteran. He knows exactly what he's doing. He can bring something in on budget. Uh, And what you notice in this one, it's 101 minutes. There's very little, if any, wasted screen time. Everything moves. It moves, it moves, it keeps going. It has a really good pace. Doesn't feel boring. Nothing drags along. Every scene has some sort of significance. Um, It doesn't come across so much like a B-action movie in a lot of ways like you could tell this is when Canon films was still flirting with putting stuff out in theaters and shit that they thought they could get people to see. Um, it wasn't so much like a be home video type deal at this point. And I would say at this point too, uh, and in 1983 they're still capitalizing on death wish without a doubt. And they know that Bronson's going to bring a certain amount of people to see the movie. And I, I, you know, honestly, this is out of all those types of movies. Um, like Bronson's exploitation, so to speak. This is definitely one of the best.
1: That's the thing. This is a, a really straight movie. You know, we always look at uh, the classic. Thursday Night Prime segment UIC we call it unintentional comedy and there wasn't really any of this uh, that in this film because it was pretty played straight really well done really good actors as we've been discussing however hey the Jay's good at what he does and I did catch one that I was dying at the beginning so the the serial killer you know Warren Stacy ends up with his first victim that we see and that was a that was a clever plot too he like goes to the movie theater and kind of makes it to to hit on these two girls so it's known that he's kind of bothering yeah. them. And he stands out and he leaves during the movie to commit a murder and comes back at the end, which like sets his alibi and stuff. But within that murder and that being the first um, like body that they're kind of breaking down as Charles Bronson and his team of detectives with Andrew Stevens, his new partner and all that. And of course, he comes in the morgue and they're talking about the body and Bronson comes in and he's like,
2: Well, if anybody does
1: something like this,
2: his knife has got to be his penis. Yeah.
1: And it's that's and there's this like weird musical sound out there. I'm sure Cam will throw it up,
0: but I was <laughs> the way he just delivers and it. And of course, to me, the quote of the film. So he finds clearly like a sexual device at this guy's apartment. And he's like looking at it all <laughs> yeah. super confused. And later in the movie, they have Warren Stacy in the fucking, you know, in the room and they're interrogating him. And he's like, and then what about this? This is used for jacking off.
1: <laughs> yeah. Jerking. On like, off. Oh
0: my God. Yeah, but, that's you know, hilarious. But, you know, Still got to have that shit yeah, in there. You gotta add that stuff in there. But nonetheless, man, overall, uh, I got to say, this is a winner. Definitely one of the better things that we've uh, looked at here on Thursday night. Prime. Uh, I know that you have, uh, you got to have a, a tagline for this one. J.
1: Oh, of course. Charles Bronson and 10 to midnight. Hey, Ed, a cop, a killer,
0: a deadline. Perfectly put. I thought that one was pretty good. And as I've said on this show numerous times already, five-star rating scale this week, I'm going to give this one three and a half. I'll
1: go with a solid three on this. I liked it a lot. um, But I'll go with a solid three to be a little bit different, but great, great movie. We we mentioned I hadn't caught it before. Hey, Ed. So that made it even better. I'm always looking for new watches with all the shit I watch. So uh, first, first run through for the J really enjoyed it. Different take, great acting, thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: And next week, right here on Thursday Night Prime, as I mentioned, it's going to be our our last one for a little while. We're going to go on a little bit of a hiatus with Thursday Night Prime, but no, don't don't fear, it it will be back. I promise you, we're not done doing these. Uh, and next week, we're going to have from 1984, The Evil That Men Do, starring Charles Bronson again, uh, with our you know, I, I guess this is uh, this guy might be uh, getting up there in the world of uh, prolific directors on our program. And, of course, I'm talking about J. Lee Thompson. he got to be giving Mark Lester a run for his money at this point.
1: Yeah, J. Lee Thompson's adding him up here so on What's Real.
0: That's coming next week on Thursday Night Prime. So we are going to take another quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up the show and talk some goofs. So hang out, everybody. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast.
1: Hey everyone, this is The Jay with the What's Real Podcast. Here today for The Unsung Movie from Churchill Pictures in association with Cut and Run Studios distributed by Bayview Entertainment. The Unsung, in an old industrial town, a homeless man, Eric, roams the streets looking for a place to rest when he comes across a young girl, Samara, in danger. He runs to her aid and as a kind gesture, she leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Soon, he finds himself involved in the search for a serial killer while running afoul of the lead detective. The Unsung is now available to stream digitally to rent or own on vimeo.com through a direct link at churchillpictures.com and now is available on Amazon Prime Video to rent or own. Go to churchillpictures.com, vimeo.com, or amazonprimevideo.com to check out The Unsung today. Hope lives in the shadows.
0: Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goof. And we're back. So the Jay, what do we got this week on the goof front?
1: As the countdown to the big 6-9 has begun, hey, yeah, we are within the Goofs or Goose segment here on episode 68 of the What's Real Podcast, and as usual, with Planet Earth in 2021, as we constantly say... No shortage of goofs. So we're starting off with one of our viral videos, which we haven't done in a while. This is a classic, but here's where the timing hey, here is. Hey, you know, where with it being Mortal Kombat week, this is that video of this goofy ass fight with this chubby dude that um, starts with this like big skinny dude that just karate kicks the fuck out of him for three minutes. Do you remember this? And somebody put the Mortal Kombat song on there. So here we go. They put this Mortal Kombat sound over there. <laughs> and this dude just kicks the shit out of him. So I have to throw it on the Twitter since it is a vigil. But with the Mortal Kombat fight video, we had to shout that out because I, I thought that was goddamn hilarious. So um, just two goofs, you know, fighting over absolutely nothing. What is usual in the Which world. Which
0: is kind of true go. of the actual movie, too.
1: Next up on Goofs or Goofs, a woman recently found out that she was a wanted felon for not returning a rented VHS tape. geez, let me redo that. Hey, ill. <laughs> a woman recently found out she was a wanted felon for not returning a rented VHS tape 21 years ago. The Jay's lucky number. Um, in Norman, Oklahoma, home of Jim Ross, hey, Ed, which I didn't realize, a Texas woman just found out about a decades old felony charge against her all over a rented VHS, I cannot say VHS, VHAs. that's where I'm at in the day,
2: VHS,
1: <laughs> Ta- taken out in her name and never returned. The first thing she told me was felony embezzlement, so I thought I was going to have a heart attack, she told local news, and the tape of all things that she was a wanted felon over, Sabrina, the Teenage Witch.
0: <laughs> and then she was like... <laughs> And I didn't even, I've never even seen the show or the movie or anything. So I don't, it must've yeah. been my boyfriend at the time. And I'm like, this yeah. is you don't, you know, just yeah.
1: take it. she believes her boyfriend at the time may have rented it in her name of, uh, his young daughters and never returned it, so uh, she you know got it dismissed and everything, but goes right in with the the show. We talk about our nostalgia days of uh checking out the mom and pop video stores, so thought that was funny that she was facing a a wanted felony for a VHS VHS from 20 from 21 years Nobody ago. Have any outstanding Next uh,
0: felony is from stupid shit I did 20 years ago.
1: I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure I do somewhere. That's, that's usually how it works, of course. So next up on Goofs or Goofs, uh, this was a, a big viral story that had me cracking up. I don't know if it, it caught your wind. Hey, you know how it is. I like to throw these at you sometimes here on the GRG. A Japanese man has been arrested after reportedly dating more than 35 women at the same time in order to get birthday gifts from all of them. <laughs> He he gave each woman a different date for his birthday, ensuring a constant stream of gifts through the year. <laughs> what like, a genius! Yeah, Takashi Miyagawa. is. Yeah, I
0: literally think this is the greatest idea I've ever heard. Yeah. How many women? Do As this? John, three hundred and sixty-five women. It worked out perfectly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Talk about bumping up the sneakerhead collection. Jesus. Just asking for Jays. Daily. Thirty-five days. Of, yeah. And uh, as as the friend of our show, John Legend himself said, "I'm disappointed in the total value of his haul: nine hundred and twenty-six total dollars from thirty-five women. He was getting office Secret Santa level gifts here, but yeah, a hilarious story, and I, I got a kick out of that. And last up which is another theme of the show in GRG is animals on drugs. Hey, as a race dog tests positive for meth and his trainer is disqualified. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're here now. Breaking news on TMZ sports. Uh, this is equal parts sad and wild. A dog trainer in New Zealand has been disqualified from racing after one of her winning greyhounds tested positive for meth. It's crazy. But unfortunately, it's true. Hey, you know,
0: I'd be more inclined to believe if it was somebody's race dog from fucking Florida than New Zealand. But
1: yeah, that's what I thought. Like instantaneously, I'm like, you know, because I go down to Southwest near Naples, they have a famous dog track. I'm like, this is probably Naples. It's
0: got to be Florida. Nope, it's New but Zealand. Z- New
1: somewhere. Zealand's the and the winner here. Yeah, New, New New Zealand. And as you could tell by my stuttering, hey, you know, I am on fumes. The tank is on J. Hey, you know, past past E. Yes. Very far pasty yeah, e. It's, but uh, trust as, me, I'm the same way at this point. I don't even know where I'm at. Cause as I say to my brother from another mother, hate you know, from a Japanese man's dating scheme for gifts, a woman's past VHS tape, hey, VHS <laughs> <laughs> causing her to create a felony for herself. to great editors on the interwebs, putting mortal Kombat music over a terrible fight. And of course, race dogs in New Zealand testing positive for meth goofs. Are our gifts. gifts
0: so that is it for us this week here on the show guys if you are listening on itunes we would appreciate a five-star review it helps get some more eyes and ears on the program of course you can listen to us every week on your favorite podcasting platforms such as itunes spotify podbean google podcasts and of course every week on churchillpictures.com but before we get out of here i hear the jay revving it up so the jay take it away brother
1: how much more can I be revving up this week? Hey, you know, than a race dog on meth. I mean, that says it all. As I always say, love the show, the usual weekly shout out to the wizard behind the boards himself and the blood flow and flesh. As I say, Cam, thanks for making a 16 K crystal clear week in and week out. We appreciate what you do and appreciate all the hard work. Thanks for all those here in my voice right now, man. We always appreciate it. We have a blast here on the show. I'll shout it out again this week. We Steve McQueen at the great escape from pandemic living. Hopefully as I stated week in and week out we can stop saying that soon but i'm going to throw it out there again this week as i leave the charge for hey ed as like we like to leave with our listeners stay safe stay healthy and you'll hear the J next week so that
0: is it for us this week on the show big shout out to the brother. There's nobody else i'd rather do it with so thanks for sitting down with me as we do here each and every week of course thanks to our producer cam for all the hard work he puts in for the show and we all know nobody beats the whiz, so that's just how it goes. So that is it for us here this week on episode 68. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm fully vaccinated. I hope you're about to be fully vaccinated. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see your VHS right here next week. VHS! The What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?